Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark Labuski here for the Simply Practically Human podcast, just back from a couple of weeks of life design adventure up in the Northern Territory and hadn't banked any podcasts. So this episode is a repeat of the conversation I had with the amazing Marty Linsky, who is one of the founders of Adaptive Leadership. This is a podcast that I go to quite regularly when I'm sitting out in my sauna just to check back in on how I'm feeling about leadership, how I'm looking at leadership, and how I'm still trying to apply the lessons daily that Marty shares in this episode. It's an absolute cracker. Have a listen. You will be challenged on the way you look at leadership by listening to Marty. We'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by professional colleague and, and more importantly, a good friend, Marty Linsky. Marty, great to have you on uh, the podcast. It's nice to be here, Mark. Good evening for me. Good morning for you. Yeah, certainly is uh, early here, but I've really been looking forward to this one. Marty, before we kick into the whole idea of the simple and practical ways to maybe start to look at leadership differently, I'd love to um, just get you to maybe share a little bit about how we connected. I think it was back in 2014. What can you remember about that time? Well, at my age, remembering any time a while ago is difficult, but it was uh, the, the program that you and I did together was a, one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done professionally. It was an eight or nine day program at the Kennedy School of Harvard that brought together colleagues, real colleagues, people who did leadership development, who taught about leadership, who were uh, senior people in HR and organizational life all over from all over the world and from all different sectors. And it was really exciting because any one of those people could have been in front of the room. You could have run that program. Anybody who was there, you know, each one of us, there must have been 50 or 60 people, I don't remember exactly. We all have our own shtick. We all have our own uh, stuff. And it was really an opportunity to engage with colleagues in a way that you don't usually get in a teaching situation or training situation, where you've got a, a much sharper division between the people in the front of the room and the people who are participants. Yeah, and um, it was a, an amazing experience for me. I remember something very, very clearly and something maybe for the listeners to think about if you're managing um, other human beings is some words of encouragement that you gave me, I think, on the second to last night around, you know, you get this stuff and, and you know, get out there and have a go. And I, I am truly indebted to that, Marty, because I think it's helped me to get to where I am today. So I'd like to say thank you very much for that. Well, I appreciate it. But you were put yourself out there and so... We got to know you really well, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, um, you know, I was interesting, uh, and a colleague of mine, Colin James from Australia, who'd been to the program, he said, you need to get in early, Mark. You need to make a mark in there pretty early or you sort of miss out. So I took his advice. So I, th I thank you for that. So that was 2014. Just for the listeners' benefit, a little bit more about you, Marty, just a bit of your backstory and, you know, where you grew up and... What's influenced you to sort of go down this pathway with the leadership? Well, I've, I've been very fortunate, Mark. Uh, I grew up in a very calm time uh, in the world in the 40s and the 50s in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. 
I went to law school because my father told me it would be a good education, even though I didn't want to practice law. And in my third year, my last year of law school, um, I ran for the state legislature. It was actually in the fall after I graduated. And I, I never expected to do that. I enjoyed the campaign, but it whetted my appetite for uh, uh, winning. <laughs> and uh, I went to work uh, in state government, in Massachusetts state government, for an extraordinary human being by the name of Elliot Richardson. Uh, most of your listeners probably have never heard of him. He had his moment of fame, his 15 minutes of fame, to quote Andy Warhol, when he was the attorney general of the United States who resigned uh, when Richard Nixon, who was then president, tried to force him to fire the special prosecutor who was investigating Watergate. Oh, there you go. Richardson resigned rather than comply with the presidential request. He was also uh, held more cabinet positions than any other man in the United States history. But he was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. He was also my campaign manager. He was also the person who suggested that I run. So when he won and I lost, I went to work for him in a very small office. And it was an extraordinary experience. And it really got me to see the public sector from the inside and, and from a fairly senior level, even though I was not in elective office I was working very closely with him and with the governor of Massachusetts and with legislators. I then ran again and got elected in 1967. So I was a three-term Massachusetts state legislature. And I think that was a deeply formative experience for me. I think it taught me more about human nature than I had learned uh, really in my entire life, those those three terms. And, And it helped me understand the challenge and the value of working across boundaries. Uh, you know, you work in a legislative body, uh, legislative bodies, even parliamentary and parliamentary systems such as you have, but even more so where in the U.S. the legislature is an independent branch of government. It's a fairly flat organization, and it is unique in that your accountability is external to the organization. Most organizations that we work in, the accountability is internal in the organization, primarily. In a legislature, it's external. There's there's nothing anybody inside the system can do to take away your vote between elections, you know? So you realize, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, the first day there, you realize that in order to get anything done for the people who sent you up there, you've got to play along with some of the people that your people sent you up there to squash. (laughs) and So it forces you to never alienate anyone and to look for commonality and common ground and to find ways of collaborating and creating unusual partnerships and unusual alliances. It was just, it was a wonderful lesson in human dynamics, just wonderful. I left there uh, and became a journalist for about 10 years. And then I made my way to the Kennedy School where I met Ronald Heifetz, who was a psychiatrist and musician. I came out of journalism, law, and politics. And we began to see that we, we were coming at this question of leadership from very different perspectives, but with a lot of commonality. Yeah, And that's period in the period of uh, the 80s Then I began to work on leadership stuff. Fantastic. And um, and I guess, you know, culminating in in the experience that I 
was fortunate enough to have, you know, the, the adaptive leadership, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Just in regards to you know, leadership and, and your thoughts on leadership, I'd love you to share perhaps just a little bit around what changed for you around that idea of leadership being a title or a position versus what you're now thinking that it's more about it's what people do, it's an act or, or a verb. I think the, the conflation of leadership with a big job is not only wrong, it's also pernicious. Leadership is something some people do, and it's independent of position. I don't think it's an accident that when you think of who are the iconic people exercising leadership, you think of people like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa. None of them had big jobs. None of them were CEOs. And I don't think that's a coincidence. When you have a big job, you have a lot of authority. You probably have a lot of formal power. You can order people to do things and punish them if they don't. But when you don't have a lot of authority, you can also have opportunities to do things, to behave in certain ways that people with a lot of authority can't because they're always at risk of losing that authority. Yeah. The point here is that any position that you have in an organization or in a family or in a community, you can exercise leadership from that position. The challenge is to understand what your resources are and what your constraints are. And if you're the prime minister of Australia, you've got tons of constraints on what you can do and what you can't do. And if you're um, an average citizen, you also have lots of constraints. If you're an Aboriginal, there are some things you can say and do that you or I can't say or do. But there are things that you and I, places you and I can go and have conversations that it would be difficult for an Aboriginal to have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so understanding who you are what your role is in the situation, what your assets are and what your liabilities are, is a diagnostic resource no matter where you are in an organization. Hmm. We conflate leadership and authority. We conflate leadership with having a big position because everybody wants to be thought of as a leader. They want to be thought of in that way. And yet you know from your own experience we call someone a leader when they do something that we want them to do. Yeah, absolutely. We call, we call them a bad person when they do something that we don't want them to do. <laughs> the way people get recognized as leaders is by doing what their constituencies, communities want them to do. It's the same way as being a parent, Mark. Your kids love you when you feed them candy and let them watch TV and play with their smartphones. And they tell you you're a terrible parent when you put constraints on that. I don't think it's any different in organizational life than it is in family life. And it is a disempowering idea that leadership comes from having a big job. Yeah, couldn't agree anymore. And I think for those people who are listening to this who maybe experienced some of the work that I do with them, they'll, they'll be hearing some of the echoes of, uh, of, of this stuff because... This whole idea that once we get that title, you know, leadership meetings, leadership teams, we yes. off-sites, all of these leadership things that we go to, yes. where I say there, there are too many actors and not enough acts. And right. we've, got to stop, we've got to stop acting and start taking action. So, Marty, I think it's um, 
amazing to hear that. Have you got any thoughts around organisations that are starting to take heed of this message that leadership's not always about the big office, um, about the big title? Any Anything you're seeing that's telling you that this is starting to shift at all? Well, I, I see a couple of things. I mean, one is uh, because of technology, people are having to adapt to the challenge of not being the same place geographically yep. and yet to create relationships of trust and collaboration without having the advantage of bumping into each other in the hallway every day. So that is putting some pressure, I think, on how you create a culture in a virtual organization that does more than just get the tasks done, but creates a community. I think we're learning a lot about that, but it's we're really at the beginning. Yep. The second thing that I've seen, and I think you see it in the most obvious example is Uber and Lyft, but you see it in so many places. People who are challenging the status quo and the way we do business, I think a lot of that is coming from uh, millennials who don't take the self-evident truths that I live have lived with as either self-evident or true. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing is taken for granted anymore. And some of that leads to a lack of trust. Uh, And there's a danger of that. But I don't think about it that way. To me, the challenge, and it's a leadership challenge, is to, at the same time, to be relentlessly optimistic that you can change the world or you can change your organization or you can change your team. And at the same time, be brutally realistic about how you, what it's going to take to do that. Yep. If you can hold the optimism and the realism together, then the realism prevents the optimism from becoming naive and the optimism prevents the realism from becoming cynical. And so I try, and the people that I work with, I try to encourage them to never lose hope that they can change the world, but to be brutally realistic. People want you to choose between being a realist or an optimist. And to me, the challenge is to hold them together at the same time. Yeah, and a big challenge in itself, because I guess we sort of, we've learned over time to either go one way or the other. Yes. And that's an interesting point you make, because I now think about, you know, some of the learnings from the adaptive leadership around the ability to hold different perspectives. And and I I talk a lot about human beings trying to convince other human beings of their rightness and our ability to be able to hold perspectives and then maybe accept that our perspective is not the perspective that's going to be the most useful at a time. Yes, uh, I know you do a lot and think a lot about trust. And I've tried to think about the relationship between trust and curiosity. Yep. And try to encourage people when they hear something that they find that sounds offensive or ridiculous to, to be curious about it rather than to be negative about it. Yeah. Why would that person, how does the world make sense to that person that he or she would say something like that or do something like that? What is the way, what is the picture they have in their heads? It's very closely tied to empathy too. You know, mm-hmm. the, I think of uh, radical empathy as the capacity to get yourself into the shoes of people who you think are Looney Tunes. You know, the crazier you think they are, the more important is that you understand how the world makes sense to them. Because we're, we're sense-making people. 
Well, you go to bed at night, you tell yourself a story about what happened during the day. If you're like me, you probably tell yourself a story in which you're, if not the hero of the story, at least a good guy in the story. <laughs> and it's important to remember that there are a dozen people going to bed at night telling themselves a story about what happened during the day in which you don't come out so well. Yeah. And there's no truth there. Those are just stories. They're ways of making sense of our, of our reality. Yeah. Trying to understand how other people make sense of their realities when it sounds crazy to you seems to me an important leadership skill. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always think of that idea that if only organizations weren't full of human beings, it would be so much easier. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> and to my colleagues at the Kennedy School sometimes talk about if they only take politics out of politics, it would be much better. <laughs> <laughs> so just to, to move on to... Just some simple and practical tips. And I, 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 perhaps when we're thinking leadership, the idea of simple and practical and leadership, maybe they don't align so well, but the whole idea that leadership is not a title and not a position, but it's if you think of it more as an act or an action or right. a verb, what would be three simple and practical tips you would give to managers or organisations, Marty, about how you can move more to thinking about leadership in a different way? Well, I would say one thing is to think about giving the work back. People want you to take the work off their shoulders, particularly the hard work. And you get rewarded for that. You get applauded for that. And I would encourage people to keep open the option of giving the work back on the people who want you to do the work. You know, my, my metaphor for that is when two people come into your office and say that we disagree and we can't figure this out, whatever you decide is okay. Uh, that your response should be, there's a conference room over there. Go in that conference room. I'm going to lock the door. I will shove pizzas under the door until you guys agree. And whatever you agree with, I'll, I will go along. And that's very hard for people in authority to do, but it changes the dynamic immediately. And I think it is truly an act of leadership to push the work back and not get sucked in to taking the work off of people's shoulders. So that would be one thing. Second thing, which is kind of related to that would be to not take it personally. So when people come at you personally in a professional setting, both critically and with lavish praise, it's not about you. And if you take it personally, you're liable to get diverted from whatever it is that the, the focus of the work ought to be. So when someone says to you, you know, Marty Linsky, you are the worst facilitator I've ever seen. I've worked with hundreds of people. Instead of defending yourself, the response is, uh, now let's get back to talking what we should be talking about. And the same thing is true when people tell you, you know, uh, Mark, you are the most extraordinary facilitator I've ever met. I've never met anybody such an, had an impact on my life, you know. And then the, the question in your mind should be, what is this guy trying to get me not to think about? <laughs> so trying not to take it personally, because people, not necessarily consciously, people will frame things personally in order to divert you and make it about you and not about the work. I guess the third thing that I would think about, let me see, is to spend more time on the interpretation of what is going on than you typically do. We typically move from fact-gathering to action. We think of ourselves as people of action. We're decisive. 
We get stuff done. And we think that the interpretive part of leadership is really, really undervalued and underutilized. So when you're in a meeting and you're trying to understand what's happening, either in the meeting or in the organization, asking the question, well, what's really going on here? And when you get the, begin to get more than one interpretation, well, what else could be going on here? What's another way of understanding it? And beginning to move from kind of easy default interpretations to more difficult and more complicated interpretations, we think is really an important practice for individuals and teams and organizations to cultivate, to begin to interpret what is happening more deeply than your default leads you to. Yeah, it's a, thanks for those three. That last one in particular reminds me just recently of working with someone who had a, had a particular issue around safety. And uh, we, we started to do some diagnosis and someone jumped in and said, let's just write a new policy. Yeah. It's like we're going straight to solution. We're going straight to intervention. And the perspectives that came out because we held some space in interpretation was everything from we have a, a great culture. Do we have a culture of bullying? And, and that's why safety is not there. And I think it's important yeah, yeah. that we allow time in a, in a I guess, in, a, in an environment where short-termism, quick results, feeling safe and all these things, you've got to keep moving. We've got to sort of work against our human instincts to feel safe. Yes. That's yes. one of the challenges of leadership. I think le- leadership is about increasing your own and other people's tolerance for uncertainty and for discomfort, and for conflict. And we tend to pay people who are are in authority for reducing uncertainty, reducing conflict, uh, reducing complexity. You you think about the pressure we put on doctors. We want doctors to give us an answer. Most diagnosis is a guessing game in in the healthcare world. And yet we are so, we put so much pressure on the medical community to give us an answer that we force them, I think, into trying to be clear to us rather than trying to share their uncertainty. Yeah. It's just an example. Yeah. Something I heard you say in a video recently was about, I think this is, is around leadership being about the distribution of loss. I think we don't talk, we don't talk about leadership as focusing on loss. But what keeps organizations or individuals stuck in the status quo, in an unsatisfactory status quo, is the fear of loss. You know, one of the things the behavioral economists have demonstrated, which we knew anyway intuitively, is that we fear loss more than we value gain. Yep. We're hardwired to think about survival. And in exercising leadership, in leading change, deep change, there are always going to be casualties. Now, those casualties might be values or beliefs. They might be functions in an organization. They might be real people. But identifying those casualties, identifying what the losses are going to be and paying attention to them it's really an important ingredient for success, yeah, as well as a moral imperative. It seems. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, we think about leadership. I've heard you say as well. Yeah, leadership is inspiration, but perhaps it's more about perspiration than inspiration. Yeah. 
Um, mm. So, look, I think that whole idea of distribution of loss, it's not always leadership is hard work. And I guess that's, as you said, that's why people don't exercise leadership enough. Yeah. Yeah. So just one other thing, my thought process around why is it that human beings potentially in the workplace, something I see is we're trying to come up with the next big thing, the next complex idea, the, the silver bullet, if, if you must. Why do you think it is that human beings are perhaps romanced by complexity rather than looking for some simple ways of getting things done? Any thoughts on that? Well, there's a wonderful quote, which I, uh, I love. An eminent United States jurist by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes, he once said, uh, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my right thumb for simplicity on the other side of complexity. (laughs) So to me, that's the challenge. The challenge is to not be afraid of complexity, but to get on the other side of it, to be able to figure out what the essence is and pay attention to that. Yeah. Marty, thank you very much. Just before we um, finish up, where can the listeners learn more about Marty Linsky? I'm sure with what they've heard today, there'll be some people now really, as I did many years ago, starting to really challenge my thoughts about what leadership is and what leadership can be. Where can they find out more about you? Well, my email address is mahty at pipeline.com. I love having conversations with people who are interested in this uh, world. So I would be happy to hear from any of your listeners and then I could tell them everything I know about you too. (laughs) I'm not sure that that's going to be such a great thing for me. But Marty, look again, thank you very much for your time. um, As I said earlier, a few very, very simple but powerful words from you four or five years ago has really helped me get to where I am today. So I again want to say thank you. Well, you're doing great work, Mark, and it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Take care. I never, ever get tired of listening to Marty Linsky. It's a bit like a Seinfeld episode, I guess, which is a show that I love, that every time that I watch a Seinfeld episode, even for the 20th time, I always pick something up new. And the same thing again here with with Marty, or it might be just something on my mind at the time. And, uh, you know, today, I think that point around letting the work get done where the work's done best is one that continually sits in my mind, particularly with my work with my clients, that there's something about human beings where they like to continually be involved in the technical aspects when they've been promoted into roles where they're there to guide and enable others, but they continually get involved. So have a think about that. Are you still caught up in your technical proficiency? Are you letting the work get done where the work's done best? And if not, this might have been a very timely episode for you to listen to. Hey, if you love this one, as I did, and I uh, I love the work of Marty, please rate it five stars. Leave us a little comment about why you loved it. And if you liked it, share it with your friends. I'm sure there are many out there who could learn a lot from the great man and also from the little lessons that he's taught us today. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now. Bye for now.